Climb Unfiltered. Brought to you by Investor Ladder. Hello and welcome back to the Climb Podcast. It's probably safe to say today that the world is noisier than ever. You know, influencer culture and the rise of things like generative AI means that pretty much anyone today can be a self-proclaimed expert in almost anything, only if they can speak loud enough to be heard. But is being the noisiest and shouting the loudest really the most effective road to success today? And wouldn't some people just be better off keeping their mouths shut once in a while? Well, one person who believes this to be true is Dan Leons. Dan has been writing about tech startups almost since Silicon Valley started and has pretty much seen it all when it comes to high-flying CEOs and hotshot founders. He's written for Forbes, started an award-winning blog, satirizing Steve Jobs, which actually landed him his first book deal, and is a Sunday Times best-selling author of Shut the Fuck Up, a book called The Power of Keeping Your Mouth Shut in a World That Won't Stop Talking. In this episode, we hear firsthand the account of how Silicon Valley and its leaders have changed over the years from hippies creating tech for good to the global conglomerates that we see today. Dan then gives us a glimpse into his most recent book and shares a few ideas on why keeping your mouth shut today can be one of your greatest strengths as a business leader. So let's just jump in. Dan, it's an honor to have you on the Climb podcast. Thank you for joining us. No, thanks for having me. No problem. No problem. So Dan, you've spent most of your life and, and career in the world of tech startups, but predominantly as a, as a writer within that, that sphere and authoring three books, which we'll get to uh, a little bit later. But I just want to find out like, what made you want to, you know, what made you become a writer, but also like, embed yourself in, in Silicon Valley? Yeah, it was almost accidental. I, I really didn't start off in college thinking I would be a journalist. I literally had a job while I was in college, you know, to put myself through school. I was a newspaper reporter and uh, just kind of stayed with it. And then in the late eighties, a friend of mine was working at a, a new publication that was about this new thing called the personal computer, you know, like a trade publication sort of recruited me to go work there and the time was weird to be a tech journalist because all of my journalist friends thought like, oh, you're, you've sold out. My friend and I both could tell this was going to be a big deal. And we ended up both going to Forbes magazine. And then that became, that became what felt like a, a real job. And it was good. By then I had a specialization and it was a good specialization to have because, you know, there's a lot of interest in tech. So it was just a progression. And then I, I realized I was really interested in it. I, I find it like I wouldn't want to be a sports writer, even though I think in some ways it's a cool job. I'm not, I'm not really passionate about sports. So for example, that would not have been a, a domain that I would have wanted to pursue. Okay. You know, at that, at that stage, I imagine it was quite new and quite young with, with tech startups popping up. What was it about that world that got you excited and made you really want to kind of write about it? Yeah. In those days, for example, Microsoft was still arguably a startup. They were not even the biggest software company. Lotus was a much bigger company. And in those days, there were companies like Ashton Tate, which was the database company and WordPerfect, which was the, you know, the word of its day. And Lotus was the spreadsheet. So it was kind of the wild west, you know, and computers were very primitive. They couldn't do very much. They didn't even have a graphical user interface yet. So there was, it was just all very new. And when you went to these companies, they were they were really wild. They were mostly run by, you know, young founders who were very, very colorful. 
but not tech bros, not like the kind of, you know, I don't know, some of the people today, but you know, the parties were great. You know, Bill Gates would be there, you know, you know, dancing, uh, you know, with, I don't know, women he met. It was, it was just like a crazy, crazy world. And, you know, everything was growing really fast. It was just an exciting place to be. I imagine there's a heck of a lot of great stories for you to write about as well, being part of that exciting world with, you know, seeing Bill Gates at parties and all this other stuff that must have given you a lot of good ammunition to write about. Well, and I was, my main beat was really covering Wall Street. So I was writing about earnings reports and analyst projections. And so in addition to learning about tech, I was learning about, you know, how to read a, an income statement and a balance sheet. And then I was interviewing analysts at investment banks. So it was, it was really fun in that regard to see, so yeah, you know, the main thing was I was learning a lot every week, you know? Yeah, for sure. So you went from, from Forbes magazine being a journalist to starting a blog. Is that right? You, while I was still at Forbes, I started this blog called The Secret Diary of Steve Jobs, where I created a character called Fake Steve. And, and that became this, it was, again, it was a joke. It began it really as like something I would do for a few weeks and just took on a life of its own. And, and so I ended up for a while doing my job at Forbes and then also writing the Fake Steve blog. I was originally anonymous. And then when I got outed, Forbes actually paid me to run the blog on their website or, or to, I guess to advertise. I had some connection with Forbes. So it had like a second job, basically. It turned into, turned into a, an income stream. And then I wrote a book based on the blog. And then the book I developed as a TV show with a guy and we sold it to a network. So this stupid thing that began as really like the stupidest, just complete joke idea ended up you know, generating all this stuff. That's the reason I ended up working on another TV show. It just led to all sorts of other things. And then at the same time, after that, I went to work at Newsweek, which was essentially like, you know, Forbes only had a bigger audience, a bigger, bigger magazine. And at that point I shut down the fake Steve blog because the real Steve was very sick and I could tell he was in bad shape and I just didn't feel right doing the blog anymore. Yeah. That's understandable. So when you were blogging about, about Steve Jobs in a kind of comedic way, what was the response from, from Apple and, and, and Steve Jobs at the time? If, because I imagine the blog was getting a lot of traction. They must have, they must have picked it up. Oh, oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. And also a lot of people inside of, I didn't know anything about Apple when I started writing it, by the way. I, I didn't, I'd never covered Apple. I was not an Apple reporter, which is what helped me stay anonymous because everybody figured it must be someone who knew. Apple inside out, but I ended up learning, you know, who the PR people were and the marketing people. So, so it became very insidery because I would be, you know, writing little posts about so-and-so internally said this and that. I think it was a mixed reaction. Steve Jobs was asked about it once. He was on stage actually with Bill Gates. This was one of the moments where I knew like this had become something. They were at this, this conference and it was a historic moment. They were being interviewed together and they were, you know, famous rivals. And the first thing they sat down and Gates turned to Jobs and said, I just want you to know I am not fake Steve Jobs. That's not me doing that. And everybody laughed. And then the, the guy, Walt Mossberg from the journal was doing the interview and said to Steve Jobs, have you, you know about this blog? Have you read it? And Jobs is like, yes. And what do you think? And Jobs said, well, you know, some of it's funny. You could tell he, he probably didn't like the piss take, you know, other people I think would, could deal with it. He was you know, very serious, but internally 
yeah, I had all these people at Apple who would reach out to me, especially after I was out and I was on a book tour with my book, they would come to my events and they'd be like, we're not supposed to be here, but we want you to know we love the blog and it's so funny. And one guy told me, guy who did PR, that I think it was his mother-in-law or his mother followed the blog. And every time he was mentioned, he would, she would call him or write to him and say, you're on the fake Steve blog again today. Blah, blah, blah. So she said he, so he liked it. I mean, you know, it was, it was mixed. I think most people understood it was just for fun. It wasn't here. Wasn't meant to be too serious. No harm intended. You weren't slandering anyone too, <laughs> too much. Once in a while, maybe. <laughs> brilliant, brilliant. Is that blog still available? Is that blog still online available to to read? Yeah, I think you can go to fakesteve.net and it's it's archived there. And there were a couple of people like they became sort of recurring targets. One was that guy Walt Mossberg from the journal who, who really hated it. I only found out because his partner, Kara Swisher, I had lunch with her or dinner with her once in San Francisco. We met. And she said to me, by the way, Walt hates you. He hates this blog so much because you're always making fun of him. And I would make fun of a lot of the reporters who covered Apple. They were sort of my favorite targets. And I felt like they were fair game. Right. Yeah. Great. So that, that led you to the book deal, right? From Disrupted, Ludicrous Misadventures in the Tech Startup Bubble. That's the book. Yeah. Yeah. That's it. Yeah. Well, I didn't leave directly to that. I, I got laid off at Newsweek. And decided there were no jobs really in media anymore, no good jobs. And I thought, well, I've been covering tech for, God, 15 years or something. I'm going to go work for one of these companies. I'm going to find a startup and, you know, catch the next rocket ship as it takes off. And so I went to work at a startup, didn't go very well. In the middle of that, I also got recruited to go work on this show on HBO called Silicon Valley. As those two things were happening, I realized like, the place where I was working was crazy and absurd and really comedic, but not in the same way as a TV show. And I thought, well, this deserves its own book or, you know, TV show or movie. So yeah, so I wrote that book. I see. And that's a fantastic show, by the way, Silicon Valley. I've seen it all. It is, is, is absolutely hilarious. <laughs> yeah, yeah. It has its moments. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, it's great. It's great. In this world of tech startups, you've seen founders, you know, rise and fall, you know, how much has the founder image changed from those early days to what it is now, do you think? Well, or are they still the same? No, there was, a, there was a big sea change. In the early days, the entire industry was, this is a silly word, but it was much more hippy-dippy. It was very kind of left-wing, progressive, kind of stoner people who were more laid back, more like, I'm going to, you know, really take care of my employees, the sort of utopian people, which is like Gates was always seen as kind of an outlier and a jerk because he wasn't, he was, you know, sort of a savage, but yeah, you know, I remember going to write about this company in Santa Cruz, which is over the mountains from Silicon Valley on the other side. And, you know, they were all, it was like, everybody was dressed badly and there was a big hot tub, like this big wooden hot tub with a view out of the ocean. Everybody would just chill and drink beer and smoke weed and just kind of, you know, it was like a nice, easy lifestyle. And it changed at some point, I think when the internet began, a new kind of person kind of came into the industry who were much more about money 
and mean. And those people, oddly enough, I wrote about this in my, the book that came after Disrupted, which is really just a book of journalism. It was the guys from PayPal, the PayPal mafia, who were like Elon Musk, David Sachs, Peter Thiel, or Reid Hoffman, isn't really in the same camp as that. But they were, <laughs> oh, Keith Raboy or Rabois. They all ended up becoming venture capitalists or Elon Musk became Elon Musk. And they were all at the time sort of crypto fascist. Now they've just become openly fascist, but they were, you know, they had all read Atlas Shrugged and they, they were, you could tell they were sort of super conservative. Two of them, one of them had been thrown out of Stanford because he was so obnoxious to actually to gay people. And then many years later came out as gay himself after he got caught hiring his boyfriend to a do nothing job. And it, they were all kind of David Sachs and Peter Thiel wrote a book called The Diversity Myth way before they even got into tech, basically saying that diversity was a bunch of bullshit. It was, a, if you read it now, it's like, oh my God, it's just appalling. But it's essentially MAGA. And those people were taking over the industry and sort of setting the tone for the industry. So he ended up with Travis Kalanick at Uber and I don't know who else, but in a way, Mark Zuckerberg. So yeah, it became a, a very different world. Yeah. Hmm. Sounds like everything became a little bit more cold and more about kind of profit sharing, pleasing the, the, the stakeholders than, than creating beautiful tech or helping people. And only one stakeholder, the investor. So, you know, you had in a previous generation, HP was a model for this. They were not a startup at this point, but you had stakeholders who were customers, employees, investors, but also the community or society in the sense of paying taxes and being a good corporate citizen. And, you know, there was always this idea of shareholder capitalism in which management was aligned only with the interests of investors. And it just became more and more extreme. And these guys were the most extreme end of it, where the only people who mattered were investors and a handful of founders. And you can see the way the wealth is distributed or the way it accrues in new companies is such that, you know, Jeff Bezos and Elon Musk are insanely rich while the people who work for them really don't get to share too much in the wealth creation. I think that actually has caused problems that go beyond the tech industry. I think they're responsible for a lot of the polarization in society now. I think it has repercussions across all of our lives. Yeah. So you have the creation of the gig economy, for example, and, you know, Uber and the way they abuse their drivers. It would have been unthinkable that HP would ever run a business like that. Or, you know, even IBM, they, a venture capitalist once told me that the only way, you know, Uber can get away with stuff that, that if Apple or IBM tried to do it, they would get in trouble because they're, you know, bigger, more established companies, or they would just not do it. I mean, Uber basically made became Uber by breaking the law over and over and over again and just kind of being brazen about it. What do you think about new founders today then? Do you think like a, a most founders building tech businesses today are are walking in the footsteps of, of those big tech? Or do you think there may be a slight shift as we look into the future? I think there's a shift back to have more of a holistic view of all the stakeholders, partly because, you know, it's just essentially the right thing to do. It's but also just from a business perspective, I think people have figured out that 
hiring people and treating them well and helping them develop and helping bring out the best in them is better for your own business that, you know, paying taxes and trying to be a good corporate citizen also benefits the company. Treating customers in a way that isn't adversarial. There, there are just a number of ways in which I think we were seeing the pendulum shift back. Mm. Yeah, it's interesting. I mean, even at the, the climb event that Gordon put on, you know, at this event, it was amazing to see how words like impact investing and giving back and, and providing a, you know, a, a service from a place of care was, was on at the words, the words of everyone's lips. And it was so, it was interesting to see how, you know, that's, that's sort of the common talking about, it's about that, that kind of question of how do you create profit as well as leave an impact and create positive change, which a lot of investors are looking at now as in, in businesses. So it's definitely fascinating. And I, I think you're right. I think there is a slight switch and, and shift in the thinking. Let's talk a little bit about, about what's happened recently, because you're obviously, you've written three books. So we've talked about two in, in a little bit of detail. Let's, let's spend some time thinking, talking about the third and the most recent one, which came out in, in 2020. Is that right? No, no, it just came out a couple of months ago. Okay. Yeah, of course it did. Yeah. So let's focus on the book itself. You wrote the book. It's called Shut the Fuck Up. Or for, for one of a better word, you've abbreviated it into STFU. It's the power of keeping your mouth shut in an endlessly noisy world. So Dan, what led you to want to write this book? You've given reasons for the other two, but what, what's, the, what's the reasoning behind this one? The actual anecdote that started me off it's so ridiculous. I, I can't even believe now that I didn't just begin the book. I left it out, but I, I was talking to, actually to my book agent. And I was talking about something that had happened that or I had got myself in trouble and it was, you know, whatever. Some, some wasn't a big deal, but something had, I'd sort of stepped in it and I was kind of complaining, but we were texting. And then I said, well, if I really going to be honest about it, you know, if I had never just blurted out blank, none of this would have happened. You know, so yes, people are, you know, doing this and that, and this guy's taking it out of context. But if I hadn't said it, there would be nothing to take out of context. And I said, I really just need to learn how to shut the fuck up. And and she said, you know, that's that's not a bad idea for a book. And so yeah, I kind of started thinking about it more. And I started thinking about how talking too much in my own life had caused problems. And then well, so I had two questions. Why do some people talk too much? And then B, how can you fix it? And then as I started looking more into the sort of science around speech, it's like fascinating stuff and no one had ever written about it. So for example, there's a lot of research that suggests that talking less or under talking, I call it, can actually benefit you in a lot of ways in both your career and negotiations in romantic relationships or partnerships, uh, you know, a marriage and with your kids. And so, you know, in other words, it was still kind of selfish that, hey, if you learn to talk less, you'll get more. But then the third thing I realized was, and especially with my kids, like, oh, you can actually make the lives of the people around you better. That's like super powerful. And it applies both at home, like in my case with my kids, but at work. So if you're a manager and you're trying, your goal is to bring out the best in the people who work with you to, to help them unlock all their potential. This really applies in that context. I thought, wow, that's a really, that's a really big idea for a company or for, for businesses. Yeah. Fantastic. 
the audience are going to be a lot of founders and, and people immersed in kind of the, the, the business space. Let, let's see what this, this shut the fuck up means for the business world, because, you know, the world today is very loud. I'm just going to take a quick quote from your book, because it's probably one of the favorite lines that, in, in here that I like the most is as we've ended up with a great gladiator match of megaphones in which the loudest and most toxic one prevail, which I think is quite poignant. And, and in, in the world of business, how do you get ahead when everyone is is shouting so loud, Dan, how, how do you f- strike the right balance? I'll tell you one really important idea for a founder or entrepreneur. It's a really, really big concept, which is that you got where you are by being great at talking. Like if you've raised money, that means you're the kind of person who could walk into a room with nothing but a bunch of PowerPoint slides and a story and walk out, you know, with millions of dollars, like convince people to get or hundreds of thousands. You can go into a room and talk so well, communicate so well that people give you money. That's an amazing skill. Most of us don't have it. However, now that you're there, you have a new skill that you need to learn, which is you need to learn how to listen. You need to shut up now and not always have to be the smartest person in the room but to listen to the people who work for you and around you. And in fact, that does make you the smartest person in the room. So there's a, a guy named Jerry Colonna who advises startup founders. Uh, he runs these boot camps for startup founders. He's very famous in Silicon Valley. And I've met him a couple of times and I interviewed him for the book. And he's got a whole team of consultants who work with him. And the biggest thing they teach startup founders is how to listen And one of his guys put it to me this way, that typically a lot of startup founders are terrible listeners. Hey, most of us are terrible listeners, but they're even worse than average. But it's a skill that can be learned. And I have, I have exercises in the book that I got from them and from other people, but it's like a 180 degree switch. And and it's the same within a company. Rising up, getting promotions is often because you were really smart and you had the answer and you were, you could speak well, like literally you could talk more than other people. And now you've ridden to a certain point and you need to flip that upside down and become a listener. The thing happens with CEOs a lot. And the ones who really crash and burns are the ones who can't make that pivot. And the ones who succeed are the ones who can't. So for example, Tim Cook at Apple is just one of the world's greatest listeners. He's very quiet. He'll sit and be silent and let you keep talking. And that's kind of his superpower. Fantastic. In the book, you mentioned that there is a, a shift in, in, in leadership and expectations of leaders as well, from being allowed leading from the top to a more humble, quiet, listening approach across the board. And do you think that's specifically more relevant in the world of technology companies and tech startups as in any other businesses? Or, or, or do you think the tech world is not isolated in this, in this issue? No, I think it applies everywhere. This idea of the humble leader, the quiet leader, there's a lot that's been written about that, that there's this new leadership style and it's more effective. Now, one place where it is unique in technology is in developing products. And again, this comes back to entrepreneurs and founders in a huge way. So, you know, there's this 
thing called the, the lean startup methodology, which is very popular now and well-known. The guy who really originated that idea is a guy named Steve Blank. He teaches a course at Stanford. He's a billionaire. He was a multiple startup success story. So he teaches undergrads and grad students in courses about how to start a company, right? Essentially, like if you want to be a startup founder, take this class and you will learn how to do it. And his biggest thing, I've sat in in his class, his biggest thing is that you don't start with a product. And that's the biggest mistake people make. They come up with a cool idea for a product and then they go looking for customers. His whole idea is you flip that upside down, you go out and you talk to a hundred potential customers and you listen. You listen, ask them what their problems are, and then figure out not what you want to make, but what they need. And then so you, you start with that and then you build toward that goal. So you already have customer demand. You already have, you don't have product market fit yet, but you, you know what you're aiming at. And then, then you just iterate and reiterate and reiterate with MVPs, you know, and you produce something quickly tested. And again, the most important step is not the coding, it's the listening and then getting that feedback and applying it. So it's, it's a huge concept for tech founders and entrepreneurs compared to someone in, in another industry. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. Well, look, Dan, this has been absolutely fascinating. Thank you for coming on. It's been such a, a great conversation. For anyone listening, definitely go pick up the book. It's a fantastic read, very, very readable, very funny. So I, I implore you all to, 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 to go buy a copy. Just before we wrap up, Dan, is there anything else, on, anything new on, on the horizons for you? Is there another book in the works, perhaps, or any other projects that you're working on or in the, in the world of tech that you, you want to comment on? No, but you know, after we're having this conversation, I feel like I should slice out these narrow sub books about listening. And one would be aimed at entrepreneurs and founders. I feel like this conversation has made me realize how well suited some of these ideas are to people who start companies. Yeah, yeah. I a hundred percent agree. I think you should totally do it. <laughs> Let me know. Let me know if you if you put it out. I'll be your I'll, I'll be your first buyer. <laughs> I already have the title. It's going to be called "Listen Up." You know, nice. So listening to go up. But yeah. Anyway, I love that. Well, look, Dan, it's been an honor. Thank you so much for coming on. Yeah, hopefully we'll get to speak again soon. Thanks for having me. Hey guys, thanks for listening to Climb. Remember to follow us on iTunes and Spotify if you've enjoyed what you've heard so far, and if you really like it, tell your friends about us too because it helps us spread the word. Really big thank you to CRSI and Investor Letter for sponsoring this entire event. And if you wanted to learn more about the Climb event and how to get involved with Investor Letter and attend Climb 24 next year, please get in touch via the website at investorletter.com forward slash new hyphen events and the team will get back to you. Thanks again, guys. See you soon.